Welcome to The World Below, The War in the Heavens, a podcast exploring the adventure, the intrigue, and the magic of a land that lies beneath the celestial battle between gods and demons, a clash that has gone on since time immemorial. I'm your guide, your interlocutor, and your host, Michael Pryor. Welcome, everyone, to episode 17 of the World Below the War in the Heavens podcast, the seventh episode of season two. This one is all about King Hotch I of Anarchist, the Boy King. The Rundown. Hotch was a son of Queen Ascot I and he was born in 283. He takes the throne, 298, age only 15. So he certainly qualifies as one of the youthful monarchs and, in fact, he's the last of them and he reigns until 306 when he dies at the age of 23 with three surviving children. If you remember, we sort of met Hotch back in episodes four and six of this season when he was very young and very imperiled, part of the succession drama that lurches around these Varfanite monarchs. Varfanites, if you remember, are the children and grandchildren of Queen Varfina, who we met in episode two. Her children and grandchildren found ways to make the succession in this period very messy and often very dangerous. I suppose all this isn't helped by the unique Anarchistian method of succession, where the reigning monarch gets to decide who'll wear the crown next. In the Anarchist family, that usually meant open and outright competition until someone gets the nod, whereafter the other siblings usually lurk about, causing trouble. But when Hotch's mother, Queen Ascot, died, it was all pretty clear-cut, as he was the only heir, and so there was no need for her to officially nominate the next monarch. This, however, gave a tiny crack of an opportunity for Tristan, Ascot's sister and Hotch's aunt, to put her foot in the regal door, barge in and nudge Hodge aside, which she did. The shadowy figure in what happened next is Hotch's father, Ascot had never named Hotch's father, and in Anarchist there's no need for her to do so. In the turmoil and uproar over Ascot's death and Tristan's grab for the throne, infant Hotch was spirited out of the royal nursery by someone the staff claimed was the boy's father, and they duly disappeared. This was probably a very good idea, as Tristan didn't earn her nickname, The Poisoner, for nothing. People who stood in her way had a habit of dying of severe indigestion and having the son of the last queen, your sister who you probably poison, hanging around the palace where he'd be a magnet for the disaffected and the ambitious would be awkward, to say the least. So, Hotch disappears. Stories about his vanishing, mostly suggesting that Tristan had him done away with, but naturally, with some inadequacy and elsewhere, seeing the situation as an opportunity, well, there was another outbreak of pretenders. Whenever pretenders appear, it's always useful to ask who's behind this purported claimant to the throne. Very rarely is the pretender the brains behind the scheme, so to speak. They're almost always a puppet for more sinister forces, whether Anarchistian or foreign. What makes the Hotchian pretenders all the more distasteful is that these were young children, being manipulated, thrust into a role without their say-so and without any compunction at all, about what would happen to them. Hotch would appear as a 15-year-old upon the death of Queen Tristan, who died with no surviving children. 
Her death had the advisory council flailing about and looking at cousins, aunts, uncles, all along the family line back as far as Hotch's grandfather, King Sane I, trying to find someone from the royal family to take over the throne. And when the 15-year-old Hotch appeared, it was generally hailed as a miracle. But some were naturally sceptical. The young man, who even then was described as serious of demeanour and stern of outlook, had convinced enough nobles of his identity that he was granted an audience with the advisory council. Even though they may have been eager to get someone on the throne, like anyone, they were also aware that putting an imposter on the throne wouldn't be very good for either their reputations or their heads. So how was this young man going to convince them he was truly who he said he was, the son of Queen Ascot? He did it like this. He asked the advisory council to accompany him to the royal nursery, which hadn't been used for years. Once there, he directed one of the guardsmen, who accompanied the advisory council, they were taking no risks after all, to use his halberd on part of the wall near the fireplace in one of the rooms. He promised that in a niche behind the plaster, a brooch would be found with his name emblazoned on it in cunningly wrought scales. The advisory council put their heads together and agreed this would be a pretty good test of his identity. Who else would know such a thing? So the guardsman made a hole in the plaster and found a leather-wrapped bundle. Inside it was a brooch exactly as the young man had described. He explained that his father had put it there against his very eventuality if Hotch ever had to prove who he was. Hotch would never speak about his father again except to say that he owed the man his life and that he loved him dearly until the day he died. Hotch was so clearly an anarchist and so clearly at home in the palace that the advisory council very quickly declared him to be the real thing. Umau mamau mau. The coronation took place two weeks later. Rain Highlights You might have expected that when Hotch was crowned that some sort of a Regency Council would have been put in place. After all, he was only 15 years old, a good five years short of his official adulthood. There has been some conjecture that the Advisory Council didn't go down this path for a couple of reasons. Firstly, when Queen Ascot died, a few members of this Advisory Council suggested a Regency, since Hotch was only four years old at the time. The result was Tristan ignoring them and Hotch, sweeping into power herself and a couple of the advisory council coming to sticky indigestion link ends. Secondly, the shadowy figure of Hotch's father probably entered into their deliberations. Despite Hotch saying that his father had died a few years earlier, the more suspicious advisory council members, and you didn't get to be on the advisory council if your powers of suspicion weren't extremely enhanced, they suggested that Hotch's father might be waiting for just this chance. If a Regency Council was floated, he'd present himself and he'd have very good claims to be part of it. After all, he was the young man's father, wasn't he? And then there was the impressiveness of young Hotch himself. Wherever he'd been living, he'd been well-schooled in the arts of kingship. He was conscientious, courteous, serious, thoughtful and well-learned in languages, finances and the law – so that he was able to step straight into the role of a monarch. After a few short months, the people of Aniquis were nodding to each other, thinking that they'd finally got a good one on their hands. 
Koch may have been impressive, but he was probably lonely. No sources speak of a coterie or an inner circle of friends, even of a single close friend. The Journal of the Minor Court Official, Caro Alfef, who we mentioned in the previous episode, has sympathetic observations of the loneliness of the boy king, his discomfort with strangers and his somewhat melancholy demeanour. In this journal, Althef notes that the only true friend that Hotch had was his dog, Patch, who he'd often talked to as if Patch were a human, which is entirely sensible behaviour, really. Hotch ordered an investigation into the finances of Queen Treaston as soon as he came to the throne. When this was made public, a number of senior officials fled the city for parts foreign. It was soon revealed that, to put it bluntly, Queen Treaston had been fiddling the books and enriching her own personal fortune at the expense of the realm's treasury. Her private estate had had extensive building works and had expanded its holdings severalfold. Like her father, too, she apparently had a taste for treasure and an impressive vault had been built in the sprawling villa and it was full of precious objects, mountains of scales and buckets of gold. Some of the most important relics from the early days of Anarchist had been spirited out there, taken from the palace itself. This scandal was the most pressing issue in the first year of Hotch's reign. The public pronouncements made the financial state of Anarchist appear dire, but more secret documents revealed that the situation was even worse than that. Oscar Handgarten, in The Early Years of the Anarchistian Treasury, reports that the army was sent to the far west of Anarchistian territory for a series of patrols and manoeuvres simply to get them well away from the capital when the news came through that their pay wouldn't be coming for some time. A young man though he might have been, King Hotch was not the headstrong type that young anarchists often were. Instead of trying to fix this problem himself, or simply ignoring it, he looked for help. And once again, uncustomarily, He looked outside the usual Anarchistian noble families for advice and eventually found someone who, in a very real sense, saved Anarchist. Hermia Lescar was a clerk in the Royal Treasury. She was the one who was given the petty job of being a messenger between the Treasury officials and the King, where she had to ferry the sheafs of documents King Hotch requested from the Treasury officers. She was also required to be on hand constantly to hurry his letters of demand back to the Treasury officials. Somewhere along the line, she began to give him advice, perhaps in response to queries he had about the intricacies of Treasury systems and documentation, and very soon after that, she began to become his partner in investigation. Hermia Lescar was a couple of years older than Hotch, and she came from Lowtown. Her father was a weaver, her mother owned and ran a saddlery. She had four siblings, two of whom went into the army, two into the navy. From an early age, she showed a head for figures, and once schooled, she was snapped up by the treasury, but probably because she wasn't of the upper class, she found promotion and preferment difficult. Within six months of starting the investigation into Queen Treaston's affairs, Hermia Lescar was King Hotch's trusted advisor on financial matters, but also managing the kingdom in general. It was her suggestion to sell some of the Treasury's stockpile of scales, but to do it without flooding the market and driving prices down. She also discovered that the Hypogeum had been deliberately limiting the supply of scales from the body of the dead god, working with excruciating slowness for no other reason than to keep up demand. 
Her suggestions, which became his orders, were to restructure the workings in the scale face of the hypogeum, and output was doubled within weeks. Hermia Lesca also emphasised the importance of trade with other realms, not just that of scales, but in manufactured goods and other resources. The result was King Hotch becoming something of a road builder, and he relied on the engineering skills the Anachristian army had refined over centuries to completely rework the road to Arenthia and to complete the long-promised riverside road to Miro. Plans for roads to more far-flung realms were also put in train, financed by a tax on the goods which would use those roads, much to the initial dismay of merchants, who later agreed that it was a good thing after all. Those roads, you could eat your dinner off them. Scouring the countryside to clear it of bandits was also part of this plan to improve trade, and a boost to the Anachristian navy came to help it deal with pirates. The funds for this came after Hermia Lescar introduced the king to one of her brothers, who was in the navy. He had a friend who was a heaven-watcher, those who keep an eye on the sky for heaven-falls. This friend was on the outer in her chapter of Heaven Watches because she kept scanning the heavens to the far east and the south, travelling along the coastline and recording her sightings. This practice was thought to be pointless, since a heavenfall in the sea would be irretrievable. Only heavenfalls that struck the continent were of any worth, or that was the received wisdom anyway. Hermia Lescar's brother's friend, the name of the brother and the name of the friend aren't recorded in anything that's come down to us, was adamant that a usefully sized heavenfall had come down near Outlook Promontory, one of the southernmost points of the mainland, and it was only a stone's throw offshore. This heavenfall turned out to be more than usefully sized. It was an almost intact belt buckle. Being an artefact that had fallen from the heavens, of course, it was a belt buckle the size of a village square. The water was shallow and grappling hooks were enough to haul the find up onto the beach. It was one of the truly astonishing heavenfall finds in this ancient period. The metal of the belt buckle covered with scintillating scales and swirls and walls, inlays and braids. King Hotch, assisted by Hermia Lescar, drove a hard bargain with the temple. The amount they settled upon essentially saved Anaquist from bankruptcy and the heavenly belt buckle took pride of place in a side chapel of the prime temple in Anaquist, where it can be seen today. Over the first years of his kingship, Hotch came to rely on Hermia Lescar more and more. Naturally, this aroused jealousy and enmity from those who felt that they should be the ones close to the king, not some jumped-up commoner. What made it all the more frustrating for these critics was that the advice of Hermia Lescar was almost always good. Added to this, she was hard-working, conscientious and incorruptible, having turned over several people who approached her with bribes. Her personal life, too, was beyond reproach, with no gambling or intoxicants issues and a single partner to whom she was devoted. This, of course, drove their opponents to distraction, and where some of them could have devoted their time to good works, they spent far too much time planning her downfall. Their chance came in 301, when at the age of 18, Hotch turned his mind to one of the other important duties of a monarch, that of producing an heir. Thoughtful, serious, and of a bookish turn, once his duty was pointed out to him, Hotch threw himself into it, first as an enthusiastic amateur, 
and then in a more systematic way looking for a wife. To that end, not having been brought up in Anaquist, it was decided that a series of grand balls would be held where the best and finest of Anaquist society would parade themselves and their daughters. By this time, the still very young Hermia had been given the official title of Chief Advisor and a seat on the Advisory Council. Both of these moves served only to infuriate her detractors even more. Her duties were considerable and widespread, but when King Hotch gave her the responsibility of organising the Grand Balls, she wasn't happy. She had more important things to do. This was a turning point in the relationship between King Hotch and Hermia Lescar. Before this, she had quietly and obediently gone about everything that Hotch had wanted her to do. This sort of frivolity, even in the cause of furthering the royal dynasty, wasn't her sort of thing, and she saw it as taking her away from the vital work that still needed to be done to ensure the stability of the realm. She argued at first, then begged to be released from the duty. She pointed out any number of nobles who would salivate at the prospect of being in charge of the most outstanding social events of the year. She claimed to have no affinity for such extravaganzas. She even declared that she had never been to anything like that, Perhaps King Hodge, still a young man himself, was unaccustomed to having Hermia Lesker demur like that, and he bristled. He ordered her to take on the role of the chief organiser. She declined again. He ordered her again, this time with all his royal authority. Stone-faced, she curtsied and acceded. Two decisions that Hermia Lesker made were enough to undo her. First, she ruled out a number of prominent families from the guest list explaining to Hotch that their daughters would be unsuitable matches. Second, she put herself and her partner on the list for the final and grandest ball of them all, the Midsummer Extravaganza. This sort of misjudgment was uncharacteristic of Hermia Lesker. She was almost always circumspect, careful not to overstep the mark. Perhaps it was the years of growing closer to King Hotch in a professional sense that made her forget that others would see their relationship as improper unnatural even, no matter how platonic it was. Perhaps she thought that Hotch thought as she did, that these sort of boundaries were old-fashioned and nonsensical. In the end, though, her reasoning didn't matter. Her decisions were gleefully seized upon as obvious examples of her overreach. Of course, it didn't help matters that some of her opponents were members of the families who'd been struck off the guest list. We have some letters from these aristocrats complaining about the upstart Lesker, and a very few that go into details of the plot against her. The loose alliance of anti-Lesker forces became more concerted, more organised, and it's interesting, isn't it, how the issue that brought them together and brought matters to a head wasn't financial scandal or misuse of royal funds, but it was self-interest. You can mess around with the bureaucracy administration, but if you leave us off the guest list you will face our wrath. It appears as if the most angry of the families were the Merinders and the Ashes. Both had long histories in Anacus, both were very rich, and both were excessively proud. Their ancestors were part of Eucantha Anacus band of adventurers, and anyone in Anacus who could trace their lineage back to these freebooters considered themselves the best of the best, the cream of the crop, the aristocrats, aristocrats. To be left off the guest list to a royal ball? Inconceivable! 
The result was that these families probably did more hard work in a shorter time than they had for decades. The family elders met and came up with a plan that would achieve what they wanted without sullying their hands. They'd say nothing about the outrageous insult and nothing would be done until the midsummer extravaganza when their chosen dupe would spring into action. This went like clockwork, if clockwork had have been invented in this era. It probably went more like a candle clock or a water clock or something like that. Regardless, everything fell into place for the conspirators. With the midsummer extravaganza well underway, with the guests lining up at the grand entrance to the ballroom and waiting to be announced, the dupe stood at the bottom of the moonlit stairs waiting for his chance. He was Aldo Sassentes, the younger son of a minor noble family, the brother of Caro Sassentes, a young woman that Hermia Lescar definitely saw as unsuitable for King Hotch, mostly because her last three bows had suffered extremely untimely deaths, one backing onto a knife nine times before he bludgeoned himself about the head so much that he crushed his own skull. Hermia Lescar's partner was diverted at the last minute, and so Hermia proceeded alone. Once she was announced, Aldous Ascenti sprang forward, pointed, and in a voice that several witnesses described as loud but squeaky, declared that Hermia Lescar had contrived to keep her rivals away because she'd been sleeping with the king and was seducing him into making her his queen. Traitor, he cried, and he repeated it twice more. Traitor! Traitor! The midsummer extravaganza disintegrated into a grand brawl, with supporters of Hermia battling against thugs hired by the Miranda and the Ash families. But this was simply a sidelight. By necessity, the case needed to be put before the king. Hotch's heart had hardened against Hermia since their falling out over the program of balls. As a result, those at court who previously hadn't been close to him had found that he was more open to their gossip and character sniping. All manners of depravities were attributed to Hermia Lescar, all sorts of misdealings and bad faith, so that when she appeared in front of him accused of treachery, he was only too willing to believe the evil said of her, and unwilling to listen to her declarations of innocence. Hermia Lescar was imprisoned and beheaded. King Hotch did find a wife at one of the balls, Helena Escades, from the very old Escades family, loyal, true and very beautiful. They married in 302 and together they had three children in three years, Asta and the twins Delia and Bors, but they reportedly spent little time together otherwise. Hotch died in 305 at the age of 25, the result of a paper cut that became infected and eventually killed him with what we'd know as blood poisoning. King Hotch, the boy king, the last of the youthful monarchs. He had one friend, and he killed her. That's all for episode 17 of the World Below the War in the Heavens podcast. Next episode, Queen Sendia II, the Kin Reaver. This has been The World Below the War in the Heavens, a podcast exploring the history, culture and esoterica of the world below, a continent of magic and mystery with inhabitants who keep one eye on the sky at all times. I've been your host, Michael Pryor. If you'd like to find out more about me and my books, pop over to www.michaelpryor.com.au. Farewell. Farewell.